Coach Russell Wren on episode number 42 of the podcast. Coach, thanks so much for coming on. Sure. Thanks for the invite. I appreciate it and, and feel honored. It's been uh, really neat seeing um, the wide array of guests you've had and, and what a great break from the day to be able to listen in to, to some of the collected wisdom. Awesome. Well, I got you a little uh, t-shirt. We got some new cotton tees. So awesome. A little, little gift for coming on to that. That is Right, that is the athletic department language we are speaking now, right? We'll, we'll take swag anytime we can get it. So always, thank you. Always need a nice cotton tea. Exactly. So, Coach Wren, I want to go through your, your entire journey today, going to school at Gilman as a boy and then you know going away for a little bit and then coming back to teach, coach, and become the athletic director here. Um, sure. But we can maybe start with what it's been like for you as an AD during this crazy pandemic and I want to just express my gratitude for all that you and Lori are doing here at Gilman to get the teams back playing during such a crazy time and I'm sure there's so many concerns you have to deal with every single day and it's definitely a headache but what has it been like during this whole thing? Well I think probably similar to to everyone right every workplace work type has all these kind of new levels of concerns and problem solving that are not you know it would not be in our normal job description so um, first of all incredibly thankful for for having Lori and Bryn and the rest of the athletic department um, because it has taken a lot of time on task there's no doubt in a place that is steeped in tradition and a lot of those things are great. The reality is a lot of this year has been, you know, let's make it up, let's try it, let's figure it out. Um, and I, th- I think what ultimately, right, our, our goal and, and all of the process, what has been rewarding is to attempt when even in the classroom, kind of the, the inherent value of kids being together, interacting, creating the, the deep relationships with teachers and each other that is, you know, the fabric of what we do here is just so much harder, particularly in our outdoor athletics and intramurals and whatever activities. We, we had a chance to try to fill that gap, particularly early. And I think keeping that in mind, that has made it, it actually really kind of rewarding. Um, you know, Lori's been fantastic in terms of some creative ideas to, to make things work. She is, is much more creative than I am. Um, but, you know, it, it didn't take long once we were able to really, before classes started, come back with this new kind of three-season interscholastic model where kids could get a couple days of practice of fall sport, winter sport, spring sport, uh, regardless of whether they were on those teams or not. As soon as we kind of saw kids back on the fields in small groups and just their kind of joy, and by the way, the coaches kind of unbridled excitement, we kind of knew, I mean, that was enough um, kind of food for the soul there to know that whatever we were going to have to do this year, it was worth it. And and the decision-making, risk-taking, risk management piece of that was all going to be worth it because every time we, as we were talking, walking in on a, a beautiful spring day here, Every time we get kids out on the field right now, it's a win. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's been a a lot of it is just figuring out within, you know, our safety procedures, working with the other facets of the administration that that has required much closer coordination with with all, right, we've said there's never been a time when we've been more aware of our role as middle management. Um, You know, we need approvals for sort of everything. But all that's been worth it because I, I think we have been very 
successful in the ability to offer lots of activity for the kids. And with first and foremost, kind of without the focus, the way it would normally be in interscholastics on kind of competition and, and team building, but really the focus on kind of the, the spirit part of body, mind, spirit, getting them out and moving and mental health and physical health first. And then as the year has gone, we've been able to get more and more into uh, our traditional teams and do some team building and, and, and skill building as part of that. So uh, it, it's been rewarding. I, we were very happy. I, I think the winter season was what we were most nervous about being able to pull off and thankful that, that the league um, stepped up and, and helped us coordinate that. Um, thank, and, and more than anything else, right, what this year has taken is all of our interscholastic coaches in a time when everything we do in the classroom takes twice as much time have just gone so above and beyond in offering time. You know, we'll have folks that essentially have coached between two and six days a week from before the school year started until the school year ends, and we couldn't have done any of this without them. So that that, that would be my biggest thank you in all of this. Yeah, that's probably the biggest part of navigating COVID is just getting these guys away from their computer screens and outside and running around and burning off some of that steam that they're, you know, I, I feel bad for them in class that they are just, you know, looking at the screen all day. It's got to take a, a toll and not being in school with your classmates like you normally would, you need an outlet for that. So uh, you guys have done a really good job since the beginning. I remember looking out my window at the beginning of the year and these guys were all playing spike ball out there. And it was like Gilman might have a varsity spike ball team this year because it's just one way to, uh, get these guys active and moving and outside. If nothing else, uh, Mrs. Bristow and Mr. Holmes have put the company credit card to good use and we are fully stocked for any sort of a lawn game. So if we need to <laughs> field competitive spike ball, cornhole, can jam, disc golf going forward, we're, we're in good shape. Um, but I agree, I mean, I mean that, and that was true way back at the beginning of this. It's still true now, I mean, I watched some of our really competitive kind of interscholastic sport middle school kids as we set up uh, disc golf, right? And they have to, they're in their small groups and they can't really be with their teams. And it took about two or three holes of really terrible disc golf for that to become incredibly competitive, right? Just kind of that, the bonding that comes with that and the the joy and, and even just energy burn of, of kind of having something they, they can do competitively, I just don't think we can overlook the importance of that. Uh, that's been one of my favorite things. You mentioned the window, looking out my window during the day is, you know, the sixth or seventh graders out there with their teachers, right, uh, competing, whether it's spike ball or, or uh, disc golf or whatever. Um, that makes me feel really good about what we're doing. Yeah, I think we can all agree, teachers, athletic directors, administration, that just seeing these guys back together in a, in a quote-unquote normal way is the most rewarding part of this this year you know over a year COVID um, uh, interruption but what has been the most frustrating or difficult part of being an athletic director during this time um so again I, I try to stay eternally optimistic I have a lot of friends that are coaching teaching the public schools and, and right they would scoff at what we would consider problems right mm -hmm. the, the world that they're dealing with and the enormity of their challenges makes all of our challenges seem small potatoes I think probably like other folks it, it I will look forward to the day when I can give people a firm yes or a firm no right everything is just fully caveated and 
we think we can do this and we hope to be able to and this looks good if um, and and again right that's that's belly aching about really really good opportunities that we have but I think that's a challenge and I, I feel most it's not that I have to equivocate it's that I feel bad for the folks that I know or, you know they're waiting for a yes or a no to be able to kind of plan their lives and plan their activities and for coaches with their teams right they are so invested and care deeply and they're just things you just want to be able to say not only say yes to but say yes and you don't even really need to check with me go get it hmm. that we just can't right now um and, and that uh continues to get frustrating and that's when i got to take a deep breath and remind myself we've got kids out on the fields we're incredibly fortunate we've got kids in the school building we're incredibly fortunate right absolutely um so thinking about your journey to becoming an athletic director let's start in, in and talk about your first time coming to Gilman and what your uh, maybe favorite part of your experience was as a student at Gilman growing up. Sure. So, so I grew up, I was a public school elementary school kid. I went, went to Perry Hall Elementary, which was a great elementary school, uh, massively overcrowded, but, but great school. Both my parents are public school teachers. I think most folks here know, right? My father is a long-time uh, football, baseball coach, and athletic director at Patterson High School and the football coach at Poly. So, so I sort of grew up in, in the city and county worlds of public schools. So a couple things when um, – so it was actually the McDonough athletic director that floated the idea of private school to my parents at a Maryland spring football game. My first memory of Gilman, um, other than, than the, the testing day – um, and meeting some folks that turns out were going to be very influential in my life that I didn't really know about then. I remember being compelled during the visit about them talking about things that we hear a lot today. Body, mind, spirit, multi-sport athletes, um, sharing athletes, and how the coaches that might coach your primary sports are going to be the one pushing you to play another sport. I think that was true then, that was true now, and, and is um, part of kind of the legacy of the school that, that I hope to be able to help carry forward. And then my first real memory of the classroom, and my mom reminds me of this, is so when I started in sixth grade, we had like an orientation day or two and then started classes, and I came home and she asked me how the first day was, and I said, oh, well, it's, we're still doing orientation, not everyone's here. And she said, no, today was the first day of classes. So that can't be true. I had like eight kids in a class. And so that, I mean, again, fantastic public school experience and great teachers, but 35 kids in a classroom. Right. And suddenly the idea that I'd be with one teacher and seven or eight other folks for a year um, and all the, the benefits I would reap from that, that memory will stay with me for a long time. Who are some of those teachers and coaches who – played the biggest role in your development in the classroom and on the field here at Gilman? Sure. And I think probably like a lot of folks, we default to our high school teachers, but I should say, so Fred Schwanke was my middle school French teacher and, and I took Spanish in the upper school, but, uh, and my baseball coach and he and Mr. Kumar instilled Right, obviously, to get into school, I must have had decent test scores, done decent in school. But the idea and understanding of how to take notes and how to study, you know, again, in a public school classroom at 35 where you're one of the two or three kids that they don't have to worry about just had not been developed. Um, so those folks were incredibly influential. And I think about 
right? Every time I go to a clinic today or a meeting, I take notes and I take notes the way Mr. Kumar ta taught me to take notes in, in history in, class. In middle in school. And seven, no doubt. Wow. Right. And, and I think back now as a teacher, so he would fill every chalkboard in the classroom every day with notes that you copied over. And at the end of every class would wash the, the boards and do it all over again four or five times a day. I would drop dead. I, I don't, the energy and commitment to detail that that required from a teacher, which, you know, as kids, you may not recognize is just phenomenal. Mm -hmm. In the high school, there's no doubt. Um, Peter Julius, uh, I, I had his AP Modern European class as a sophomore. That was the first, like, okay, you think you're pretty smart. Welcome to the big leagues kid <laughs> moment of um, really it, pushing us. You know, not because the reading was hard or the tests were hard, but pushing us to explain and discuss at a much deeper level what it was we were studying. Um, and, and the other person I'd have to mention as part of that um, would be Dan Christian um, and, and having his Dante class as a senior. You know, I, as an English major in college, always said the best and most difficult English class I've ever taken was as a senior at, at Gilman. Um, and then, of course, you know, Tim Holly has kind of always been lifelong friend. He was my advisor and basketball coach through my sophomore year when, when he left for Haverford. And he loves to remind me that apparently I threatened to kill him if he would leave. I, I have no memory of that. And my lawyers advised me to not speak further. Um, <laughs> but, but those folks certainly um, in, incredibly influential on in, in my time. Mrs. Bristow, her husband, Mr. Bristow, was, was the football coach. Um, you know, and to me was always kind of the, the pinnacle of kind of the teacher coach model. Um, but, you know, but also I'll never forget um, my senior year, I found out my parents had separated and he was kind of immediately right there. Um, vulnerable things we don't think about it, you know, that, that coaches and teachers absolutely did in the 1980s and 1990s that we kind of think about, oh, it was a different era. Um, but that's not the case, right? And, and he was there in the midst of the worst football season he had ever coached with me as probably the worst quarterback of the worst football team he had ever coached. Um, he was there to support me as, as, uh, as a student. And that was incredibly valuable. That's awesome. Um, tell me a little bit about the Dante class, because I've heard so much about Dan Christian. Unfortunately, I didn't get to know him that well my first year. I just didn't, you know, have many conversations with him, but he's been, a, a person who many people who have come on the podcast has said you have to get Dan Christian on to talk a little bit about that class and his influence on so many students and athletes here. No doubt. And I, I would make, I would not give him whatever puny amount of time I'll get. I, I would gladly seed time. He need, you need to, to get him and get him for a couple of hours. Um, <laughs> just an incredible man, right? Dante and defense. Um, and, and right, there are tons of folks around here with lots and lots of stories. Um, you know, to me, the modern day version of of Dan in the classroom, and apologies for him if, if he's not modern day, he might take that as a compliment, um, <laughs> is Jeff Goulon. Just sort of the, the level of commitment to each student, to each player, uh, and to the school kind of beyond, you know, just boggles the mind. So the class was incredible, right? We, we 
read some C.S. Lewis um, and, and kind of got ourselves prepared to jump into Dante at a college level, right? I'll tell you, you might read Inferno. You're not going to read the whole Divine Comedies. We read the entire Divine Comedies. Um, my mother always reminds me now, right? So when PBS, when they do anything on Dante, they're like two high school guys in the country that they consider the foremost experts on Dante, and, and Mr. Christian's one of them. Um, and, you know, and, and a couple things from that class I, I'll always remember, and I still don't know what this means, but again, kind of the expand your mind. I'll remember him. He always sort of sat on the front of a desk um, and would talk and rarely kind of made eye contact, just kind of his eyes down. But the, the tone, the tempo, you knew kind of deep thought. And I can't remember where we were. It was before the ascension to Paradiso, but whatever we were talking about, he was like, you know, it's just, it's like shooting free throws underwater. And he's not looking at us and he's like pantomining shooting a foul shot. And it was dead silent for like 30 seconds. And I don't think any of us have any clue what he meant, but we were, I mean, you could feel the brain cells burning as we were all trying to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was kind of the the level of challenge and expectation, right? I mean, that the what he expected from you in, in the writing, um, we all knew. And as seniors, when it's easy to say, hey, we're out of here soon, I mean, part of the fun was rising to that challenge. I think the last part, right, so the weekend after the Gilman-McDonough game, every year part of that class was you met here at school at O'Dark 30, got on the bus um, and went out to Sugarloaf Mountain, walked up the mountain and as the sun came up you read the ascension to to paradiso and again just how do we get to that as yeah this is something we need to do um and you know and that felt totally appropriate in a in a co-ed senior class is sort of a we're right there with with dante right we can leave virgil behind and it's time for us to, to kind of move to a to a higher level and and uh, and expand our expectations of ourselves. That's pretty cool. Um, what did he? What were some of the things that he did in that class? And you mentioned the free throw um, comparison, but but how did he make? Those are tough books to read. I remember reading. Um, what was it? I read one of them. I read The Inferno, I think, in yeah. high school, and it was difficult. Super difficult. What What did he do in the classroom to make that tangible for? seniors yeah so uh, for those that haven't read i think the challenge is so so there are lots of uh i mean just unbelievable use of language and theme and literary device that i do think seniors are capable of sort of looking at and analyzing Mm -hmm. the rest of it is in like modern day parlance right it's like dante's burn book it's everyone he's ever met and interacted with in italy that's particularly in inferno slighted him that he then placed in hell so how on earth are we supposed to know who these people are or how they've offended him? Right. And that's where, again, just Mr. Christian, right, never did anything less than 100%. So the intense level of research and then access to, to literally world's foremost experts, um, that's where he could really fill in the gaps. And honestly, I mean, you can buy commercially produced expert written sort of of readers for Inferno or for the Divine Comedy that'll tell you, oh, this person was a noble in the city. And it wouldn't give you the level of detail that he was able to sort of fill in the gaps for us. And then 
allow us, you know, having that knowledge allowed us to think a lot about so Inferno, the Contrapasso. So the, the punishment was in some way reflective of and opposite to the crime. And, and that's a difficult idea, especially if you don't really understand who the people were. So I think in one of the early, and this, I don't remember much. I've been hitting the head a lot, but this, you know, all credit <laughs> to Mr. Christian. So I, there are two, um, so lovers, right? So uh, out of wedlock and um, uh, and uh, cheating on their spouses, and they in hell are represented by that they are like personified flames. And the idea is they just sort of get pushed around by whatever wind or breeze comes around because they can't be firm in their commitments. Hmm. Um, and he was able to, again, he didn't tell us, he was able to lead us to that sort of level of understanding. And then, right, one of his famous lines um, uh, was always Dante is everywhere. So then kind of understanding a lot of the symbolic elements of his writing that influenced writers and even modern day sayings uh, that, that we had no knowledge of before, right? So, um, you know, as you go through the layers of Inferno um, and you finish with a frozen lake, so, right, the idea of it is cold as hell, which makes no sense to us, comes from Dante, right, wow. as one example. Um, and I'll always be in his debt because the great thing I figured out pretty quickly as a college English major is that I had read and understood the full divine comedies more than any of my professors. And that had tremendous value if you were unprepared in class and got called on, or if you had to write a paper at the last minute, not that any of those things would ever happen, because you could always use the divine comedy as, as your go-to um, and, and pull some sort of connection there. Um, and a bunch of the professors wouldn't be able to challenge <laughs> to what level that was a correct uh, inference or not because they trusted that you knew that better than they did. Really valuable come uh, in-season college class time. Yeah, it's tough. English in-season is not easy. It's right. a lot of reading to Just do. Just the amount of reading, right. There's not much time to get it done. Yeah, and I, you know, as a junior or senior in college, you get those semesters where you might have three English classes, which are all fantastic, but like literally not enough hours in a day to get the thousands of pages of reading done in time, so fall back on Mr. Christian. Yeah. That reminds me, we were, we were reading Ulysses and and then Finnegan's Awake in my junior year Ooh. lacrosse season. And I was Very like, uplifting. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you had that amazing senior elective class with Mr. Christian. Did you always know that you wanted to study English in college, or was he one of the forces that led you to that study? So he certainly was an influence. I, I You know, I always sometimes remind folks, I, so many people know my dad around here, but my mother was a high school librarian, right? So, you know, I played sports and read books from as long as I can remember. So I think in that regard, I, you know, I, I always was drawn to English and the humanities um, for sure. I, you know, I like probably lots of folks, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. So I certainly didn't go to college knowing I was going to be an English major. When people ask, so I had the very interesting double major of English and geology. The only other English and geology major I know of from Washington Lee was my roommate at the time. Um, and I said, I like to read books and I like to go outside, uh, particularly in Virginia near the mountains. So that seemed to be a pretty good fit. So, um, and, and I could get enough credits to do both while playing both sports. So um, really higher level thinking. 
What was it like being a two-sport athlete in college for you and balancing all the, the reading and, you know, the, the double major and all the other requirements of you as a college student? Sure. Um, I like to always say, right, I, I, I had much less of a social life than, than probably a lot of my friends, but that would have been true whether I played sports or not. So that was fine. Um, not as challenging for me as other folks. Um, I honestly, and, and I've always used this particularly, even at a co-ed school with my advising of, of boys and working as a dean. So my grades were always better in season. Yeah, that's Even true. though there is no doubt there were, you know, that meant reading on buses, the, the problem we talked about earlier, right? Thousands of pages to read and games and pregame batting practice and film study. Um, but idle tools are the hands of the devil. And I think in that way, I was probably like a whole lot of teenage boys, right? So being in season actually helped me organize, forced me to, okay, I'm finished. I'm at the library. I'm in my room. I got to get it done. Um, and, you know, and, and so I didn't play, I'm the interesting college two sport athlete in that I didn't play football until my junior year, uh, recovering from injuries. So I had knee surgery before my freshman year of college, um, and had a, a stress fracture before my sophomore year. So sophomore year, I basically helped out our starting quarterback with, was one of my best friends and, and actually played professional baseball and football, just tremendous athlete. So kind of helped out with kind of film study and essentially as a student J and then, you know, finally got my broken body into shape and played junior and senior year. Um, you know, but to me, that was also the, and sort of what we try to encourage kids to do here is you're, you only get so much time to try to do this. So do everything you can and, and figure it out. So, um, you know, did that mean I was always operating on as much sleep as I would have liked or always as prepared for a class or a practice? No, but you know what? What an awesome experience. So, mm -hmm. um, so I, I loved it and wouldn't trade any minute of it. And um, I'm very thankful. I'm not sure I knew that as an 18-year-old, right, when I was choosing between going to a Division three school for free or going to a couple Division one schools that had recruited me harder to just play baseball but having to pay a lot of money. You know, I made the right fiscal decision, and probably my athletic ego was a little bruised, thinking, oh, I'm, I'm just going to be a D3 athlete. Um, and I couldn't have been more wrong. Um, and and it, I would not trade that um, ever. It allowed me to play two sports. It allowed me to have, you know, a, a fantastic experience. One of the things I tell our kids now when they're considering playing in college, the first question I ask is, how much do you love your sport? And, of course, they say, oh, I love it. It's the most important thing. I said, so, and then, right, and I have to play D1. So, well, if we really love our sport, what matters most is that you go to a place where you're going to have an opportunity to play. Because if you truly love it, what is going to most affect your experience is if powers outside of your own take away the ability to ever get on the field. Mm -hmm. And I've been that 18-year-old. I get why that doesn't always ring true. Um, but I think that's an important message. I think it's a really important message you know, I think the parents can easily get caught up in, in the kid's ego and though my son got a scholarship or is going to go play Division One, and, you know, really four or five years later, what's going to matter is did he have a great experience? Um, and, and that doesn't mean D3 for every kid. That can mean whatever level. Uh, but I think it's a mistake and a place we can guide young men and women is shutting off those opportunities because, it, because of the ego blow. Right. And especially if you have a chance to 
you know, be, have a really good team as well. Not only no play, but if you if you're one of those D three or D two teams that are making it to the playoffs and you have a competitive league, that could be a lot more fulfilling and a, a better overall experience for an athlete than going to a D one, maybe lower end D one school and sitting on the bench and losing. Like it's nothing worse. No, no doubt. And you know, so it's when I talk to parents and kids, right? They, oh, you know, we're we're looking at the roster. And I said, so what are you looking at the roster? And so if he's a quarterback, I want to see how many quarterbacks they have. And and one of my mentors, Jim Margraff at Hopkins, used to always say, so it doesn't matter if we have one other quarterback or six quarterbacks. If he's better than you, he's playing. I, I think that's the wrong information to look for. But I do encourage them. We want to look at things like roster churn, right? So great programs at any level. Kids are going to stay in the program because they have good experiences. Places where, yeah, we bring in 30 freshmen every year, and what's the size of your football roster? Oh, we've got 80 guys. Well, wait a minute. Why aren't there 120? What's going on? Those are important things to know ahead of time. To your point, right, if they haven't had, you know, they don't all have to be, I only look at teams that have won championships, but if they haven't had success, if they've had lots of coaching turnover, that's probably indicative of, of there being – um, some issues, right? And those issues can affect you. And again, those are the things outside of our control. So that's where we want to do our homework. Whether we're the first quarterback or the second quarterback is going to come down to what we do when we're there. That is much less important than am I going to a good home, a good program? That's why kids need to ask questions of coaches about academic programs and labs and scheduling, right? Because if the coach doesn't really know what's going on academically, that's a red flag. Mm-hmm. And then... Kids should not be asking coaches about how great their culture is and, and what else they do because all the coaches will have good canned answers there. Right. But, you know, they don't eat there. They don't sleep there. Those are questions for kids on the team. Um, and, and that's incredibly value information to, to mine as well. Um, and I agree, right? The situation matters a whole lot more than the school, the team, the league in, in a lot of ways. Um, so that leads me to another question that I had uh, for you is what do you think – what trends do you think in youth and high school athletics are the most concerning to you right now, um, whether that's club sports, whether that's the culture of, of teams and, and um, parents? And what are some of those trends that are happening in, in the world of sports today that really – you think people should think twice about or, or think more deeply about? Yeah, I think it's a, a great question and, and something I think about a ton, talk about a ton. So, so thanks for, for asking. I think the first thing I'd say, because I do think there are trends worth discussing, but maybe a good reminder for all of this. And so we were cleaning out my, my father's basement a couple years ago, and we came across the article from the Baltimore Sun when he got hired to be the football and baseball coach at Patterson, having never played high school baseball, in 1973 or four. And one of his quotes, because they asked about, oh, the the changing kid today in the 1970s, they're not, you know, they're not as tough as they used to be. They don't work as hard as they used to be. So in 1974, he said, I think kids are the same as they've ever been. They want somebody to encourage them and challenge them. And if you do it right, they're looking for somebody to push them to a higher level. Um, I think that was true then and is true now. And sometimes we as adults tend to excuse make by blaming it on the generation or the kid. 
And the reality is if we do a good job of first developing trust and then demanding excellence, kids will fall all over themselves trying to achieve. Um, so I think some things haven't changed, and it's really important for us to hold on to that. Um, I think the club sport thing is a great conversation piece. I do not, right, there are folks that, oh, club sports are terrible, they're evil. I don't think they're terrible or evil. I think, again, we need to ask the right questions before we invest in a club because they are now investments, mm-hmm. right? I think the the downside of club sports, unfortunately, and this is can be any sport, is right, people have found that there's a way to make money on it. Um, and I don't blame those people for making money, but it means decisions are driven by cost. So all of us that club sports, AAU sports, whatever, travel more than we need to because that seems bright and shiny and fancy. So I spent 10 years in Atlanta, Georgia, literally the middle of the universe in the summer for summer baseball. And my high-level baseball players, one of their ways they chose their summer travel baseball teams was how much they would travel. And the reality is they didn't have to go anywhere. Half the college coaches in the country were calling me to ask if they could stay in my basement because they were going to be there for three weeks. Everyone came down there. And again, that's some of the the sort of bright, shiny things piece that that I don't know needs to be a priority. Um, I think where we as the school and as kind of the adults that are professional members of the athletic staff, where we need to intervene and help some is on the health side, right? The, the reality is that yesterday's three-sport athlete is today's six-sport athlete because it's the three school seasons plus the club seasons, and overuse injuries are real. Um, I think we need to acknowledge and advocate for multi-sport kids because that is a way for kids to stay active and avoid overuse injuries, right? So we've seen it, right? You have lacrosse kids that end up with back injuries because of all the rotation. Baseball guys that end up with lower leg injuries because they're on metal cleats for hours on end all year round. Um, We've had a, even here at Gilman, right? We have a history. We've had some basketball kids that are basketball only that end up with knee lower leg injuries, um, so as simple as right, the basketball guys running and jumping for the track team. Well, that seems like pressure on your legs and knees, different surface, different coaches, different approach, yep. right? That's a way to become a better basketball player without spending a thousand more hours in the gym. There's got to be a balance, but I think that's where we can try to push some for balance to advocate for the kid. But I think, you know, we, we are cutting our nose off despite our face if, if our position is, oh, all club sports are evil. We need to partner with who we think are good club coaches and good club programs. You know, I, I think the, the, the secret that probably all clubs have is that they're all dying for more qualified coaches. That's hard to find. So the more our folks can offer to be involved in some way, um, the more we can bring those folks to campus, the more we can – uh, philosophically partner with them, you know, that removes obstacles for our kids and families instead of creating some artificial ones. And I, I think that's important. Yeah. And, and to the point of overuse uh, with physical aspect of playing one sport all year round, I think I think burnout is another thing that I worry about when I see some of the middle school guys who are playing this one sport all year round. And I, I, I also don't think it's neither bad or good. It's just how you go about it. But it, it is, 
I think, tricky for some parents when they see all the other parents and all the other kids signing up for the club and they're like, well, my kid's going to be left out of this development, which might be true too. But I I worry about some of the kids that are signing up for the whole year long tournaments in the summer and, you know, everything going on in fall and then winter, something going on in the winter. And then you have your spring season where you're playing for your school and the club and weekend games. You might figure out when you're a freshman or sophomore in high school that I'm tired of this sport. I want to do something else. Well, and I think that's where statistics are our friend, right? So statistics say that's exactly what happens, not to some, but to actually most of the kids. So again, I'd get strange looks when I was the head baseball coach in Atlanta and, you know, and and we were this high power program and all of a sudden contending for state championships. And so I'm the middle school dean. So, you know, I'd meet with every eighth grade family and of course the baseball families the you know the dads particularly want to ask so we're, we're going to go with this club and what, you know what do we think we should do and my advice was usually keep playing football or keep playing and they're like well but you know in the fall he can get and that's when I tell them and I can't remember but the numbers it's like 70 or 75 percent of kids that specialize in any one sport doesn't matter what sport it is before the age of 13 are massively more likely to compete to participate in zero sports come high school. Um, and listen, I'm a parent. I, I have the same, get the same nerves, the same sort of, oh, geez, they're, you know, you, you can see the 10 year old that's gained a bunch of skill because they've been doing it every day. Mm-hmm. And it is hard, but I think in, in our chairs where we get to see the end product, right? We, we, it's easier for us to say, listen, half of those 10 year olds, you know, some of this is out of their control. If they're, the tallest 10 year old in their class and the smallest senior in their class, it may not matter what's happened with the skills. Right. And the, the loss of joy is, is real. Um, you know, so, so we know it doesn't translate to who's the best junior and senior player. And I think, again, that's where we need to be an ally with the parents and, and just caution. Like I understand it, it is a real feeling to feel like we're quote unquote falling behind. Um, but you need to recognize there is some skill being developed if they're playing other sports. And more importantly, when they put whatever it is, the stick down and pick the ball up or put the ball down and go to the pool, um, by switching activities, we're better training their body. And more importantly, we're changing things up and, and they can be happy. And then the next time they come back and pick this ball, the stick or the ball or the glove up, they're going to be excited to do it. I, I wish there were a way, you know, to – in the middle of some summer baseball lacrosse practices in the middle of some, you know, middle of summer AAU tournament to take a poll of parents and say, can you all please just look at your children's face right now and how many of them are smiling? Mm-hmm. And if they're not, who are we here for? Um, and, and again, that's, that sounds more negative than I mean it. I, I think it comes from a good place, but, um, but there are times where, right, our, our love for our children actually makes it easier for us to ignore obvious signs that maybe we're making bad decisions. Right. And I, I describe it as a bit of an arms race because it's just everyone's investing in this and they think it's for the good, which in part it is because you are developing, you are getting better at that particular sport. But when it becomes overblown and it's too much, I think it has a negative impact on the kid, the kid's enjoyment of the sport and their future with that particular sport um but yeah, there's no doubt i mean i think one of the biggest things i've seen that is very different from thousands of years ago when i played here is 
Uh, I like our middle school athletic program. It's interesting. We have to sort of teach kids to care about playing for the name on the front of the jersey. And by the way, I think the best club programs try to do the same thing. But right, the their organizational principle makes that more difficult, right? They're there for kids. They're pay to play. And they're there for kids to develop individually. Um, you know, when we are successful for that, when we get to a high school varsity level where a team has a great season, has a great experience playing for each other, that is the pinnacle of the athletic experience. And I don't care if we win an A conference title or we're playing in the C conference, those kids will remember that for the rest of their life and take value from that. I do think it is harder to get to that point now because it's not the kid's fault, but we have to teach them what that means. And they have to trust that, right, making an individual sacrifice for the better of the team ends up being more rewarding than maybe being the leading scorer or, or whatever the case may be. And, and, and I think that can be a frustrating part of my job and our role as coaches. I think it also, right, there's opportunity there. That's also such a great reward when we do get to that. For sure. Um, thinking about your athletic experience at Gilman, what's the fondest memory you have as an athlete here? Ooh, um, so a couple. I mean, I, you know, hard to top. My senior year had a not awesome start, right, with the aforementioned terrible football season. Um, you know, but but some silver linings to adversity. I think that helped. Our our senior class had lots of issues that started not on the athletic fields and, and are pretty well documented in the, in the school's history. It allowed um, some some walls to come down as we experienced what for us was real adversity, right? I mean, in, in the grander scheme of thing, losing a couple football games is not the end of the world. Um, I think it allowed for, so a couple great things happened that year. The, the soccer team under Coach Tucker, right? Lacrosse coach first, soccer coach, because we needed one played for the A Conference Championship. And as we said, we won in a tie with Curly, right? Curly had some professional players and we tied them. And then we finished the year, we won the school's first ever A Conference Baseball Championship. And so certainly I was on the field for that. And and that's gonna be an unbelievable memory. Um, and, and I would say my junior year, uh, when we had a great football team, um, beat McDonough in one of one of the all-time games in that series, uh, 38-35 right out here, and, and just the who's who of, of both legendary Gilman players and McDonough players and, you know, in a, a hard, to, you know, truth is stranger than fiction type game, um, uh, that, that indelible memory. Who's the best athlete you've played sports with either at Gilman or in your college athletic career? Um, so Dwayne Stooks was at McDonough. He's a childhood friend of mine I grew up playing basketball with. He was a year above me, so he was on that football team. Um, and uh, so legendary football, basketball, track athlete, played in the NFL, coached in the NFL. His father played in the NFL. Um, the The famous story about Dwayne, right? So he was sort of the, I think the first of sort of the, the McDonough border recruited athlete and uh, didn't really enjoy track. So I think technically didn't run most of his senior season, but um, he had a, a crucial fumble at the end of that football game as arguably the best football player on the field with a lot of really good football players. 
So the legend is he, the day we, Gilman races McDonough and track at McDonough, he comes out of his dorm room in like shorts and tennis shoes, stretches for 30 seconds and wins the open 100 and then just goes right back to his dorm room. Don't even stay for the rest of the meet. But uh, um, just, you know, to to try to, to, to deal with a little bit of recent history for him. So. Uh, yeah. He he was certainly uh, uh, an all-time great one. Um, Mark Teixeira was a freshman baseball player at Mount St. Joe during that senior year when we won the A conference. I always said he he had he doesn't know this, but had a really important impact on um, on I think my life and a lot of the other senior. All right, so we're we're the cream of the crop of kind of you know the '96 baseball players in the area. And Jason Mercy is a teammate of mine. Was the all Metro player of the year and goes to Wake Forest and Yanni Rosenberg was in my class, right? Tulane was the number one team in the country at that point, recruits him. He, we all play in the crown game together and he's the MVP of the crown game. So like we feel pretty good that we're pretty good players. Mount St. Joe's nationally ranked the best team in the league. Um, a couple of our good friends are seniors there. A couple have played professionally. They got some really good players. And there is no doubt that the best baseball player in the league, bar none, not even a discussion to be had, is 14-year-old freshman Mark Deshera. So that was really good because that's when I realized, so I need to start thinking about what I'm going to do when the baseball career ends because I, I need to stop fooling myself that it's going to last beyond college because that guy is really different than the, the rest of us. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, Nathaniel Bader, right, who was a basketball teammate of mine, we'd talk about my sophomore year as junior. We played Dunbar, um, and that was exciting. And so Rodney Peanut Elliott was on that team. It was a great player at, at Maryland. Um, and actually their uh, their top player was a senior, I think. Uh, Rodney was a junior. Uh, they had a senior center who uh, uh, who went and played at Virginia and was a great player. Um you know, and they were, you know, back in those days in the conference in basketball, which we played in my junior and senior year, there were a number of, of big time players who played against Juan Dixon and, um, you know, so was on the losing end of a bunch of games against some really good players. Hmm. So um, when you graduated from Washington and Lee and you were coming out um, thinking about what you wanted to do next and as a profession, what was going through your head and where did you start? Um. So I was fortunate enough, I interned before my senior year. It was great. I got invited to play in this wood bat league in Houston, Texas. And I had a teammate whose, whose father owned a small oil and gas company. So I learned a lot that summer. First of all, I, I was, as my room, I was giving a, a wing of their house that was larger than the house I grew up in. <laughs> um, they also, they felt bad that I drove my beat up Honda Accord with 200,000 miles on it out there. So they lent me one of the extra Suburbans that they had sitting in their garage for the summer. Um, And I worked for his oil and gas company, which with a geology major was really, really interesting. Um, And and appreciate all they did for me. And it confirmed that, you know, my worry was I'm I'm the son of a coach, son of an AD. I don't even really know what else is out there. Am I just going to coach because that's what my dad did? Um, And that confirmed for me that, that I needed to scratch that itch. So I became a college coach. Um, I th- had a graduate assistant year at Dickinson College where they, you know, it was a football job and they let me help with the baseball team. And then I went and coached at Hopkins for a couple of years. And that's really where, you know, certainly my father was a great influence on me as a coach and his mentors from Frostburg State. Um, 
but my, you know, where I got my coaching bona fides was working at Hopkins. So I was just incredibly fortunate. So, um, Jim Margraff, who unfortunately uh, died tragically a couple years ago, was the football coach, right? Winning as college football coach in the history of the state of Maryland and phenomenal human being. And then Bob Babb, who is in his 41st year, I believe, as the baseball coach at Hopkins. Um, another phenomenal human being, one of the smartest men, regardless of profession I've ever been around. Um, you know, so another, so Bernie Walters, the long-term Arundel baseball coach and greatest high school baseball coach in the history of the state of Maryland. He, he passed away this winter. There have been, so now there is one living member and there have only been three members of the ABCA Hall of Fame from the state of Maryland and Bob Babb's it. Um, so having a chance to, to A, work with a quality of human beings, but to learn from them was incredibly important. And, and during all that time, and then went back to Dickinson actually as the head baseball coach and the offensive coordinator and had an opportunity to do a, an internship with the Atlanta Falcons um, and be around Down Reeves um, every day for, for a little more than a month. Um, and, and, you know, that really, those folks um, had just a tremendous influence on me and, and really informed kind of everything I do, at least from, from a coaching side, but also in, in kind of a, what I attempt to do in, in terms of treating other people. So of all these amazing coaches that you've had – experiences around and coaching with what do you think the most important qualities of, of a coach are and as an athletic director what do you look for in in the coaches that you hire here yeah so I think what w was great and I took away is that all those folks are a little different personality wise and therefore coach a little differently so I think just like in the classroom so, so there are ways we can play up and, you know, I, I'm, I tend to be a more reserved person. So I am louder and more energetic in the English classroom or on the field, but you also have to be who you are genuinely. Um, cause the kids will be the first ones that see through it. Right. So, um, Mars coach Margraf could be a little more fire and brimstone. I've never heard Bob Babb raise his voice ever. Right. And until, you know, until sometime in the, late 90s, early 2000s, the kids didn't even call him Coach Bat. He was Bob because um, he, you know, became their head coach there when he was in his 20s. So, you know, that's a good example. So when I became the head coach at Dickinson, like Bob, I mean, I, I was the youngest head coach in the country. I was just turned 25. I got the job, you know, maybe turned 25. I could not be Russell, right? Um, uh, to me, that was a more important line to draw as a 25-year-old head coach where Bob, when he was 40, was Bob to his players. Um, you know, so I, I think being genuine is important. I think the other thing is there are lots of ways as we develop team culture, as we get kids to trust each other and trust us. There are different ways to do it, but I think a coach needs to be good coaches need to spend as much time thinking about planning and working on that as they do planning and working on practice plans, game plans, uh, skills. And I think, and that comes easier to different people. It changes for some people. It stays the same for other. There are different ways to do that, but, you know, that's the secret sauce. I, I, I think there, and, and we probably have some bad examples around us. There are some college programs that have been very successful with the focus on winning. They tend to not last. Right, the programs that end up being successful win a ton, and they care about winning. 
And I've always found the ones that win the most and win the most consistently don't really ever talk about winning, right? That'll take care of itself if you've, if you're taking care of the other things that matter. And if you've established a culture and the kids buy in, um, and, and, and trust each other and you, um, you know, and that's where I think being authentic matters because if they think you're not authentic, it's going to be hard for them to trust and buy into what you're selling. Love it. Yeah. I feel like I, I learned that pretty early on because I've always had a, um, I've always had an issue with coaches or teachers or adults who were the authority figure, but then wanted to be your friend at the same time. So I was pretty wary of that coming into teaching, especially right out of, out of college. And I think you just have to be your genuine self as a teacher and a coach and, and, especially high school students are going to be able to see through that very easily if you're pretending. Yeah. I I always love the line. So I I got to work with a phenomenal football, high school football coach down in Georgia, Jerry Romberg. And he would tell the kids all the time. He's like, I love you all, but it doesn't mean I like you. Right. And that was his idea. Like, I'm not your friend. I'm here to push you and make you better. And you may not always like that. You know, you've got each other to be friends, but I love you all. Right. So like, ultimately I'm doing this for the best. And, you know, and those kids would have, you know, would have run a marathon with broken legs for that man. But it was because of that, right? If he had tried to then be buddy-buddy with all of them, that they wouldn't have bought in in the same way. As an athletic director and, and when you're evaluating the different teams here at Gilman, what, what does a successful program look like to you if it's not how many wins the team has at the end of the season or, or if there's a championship at the end of the season, what does success look like for a team here? Um, so I, it's a great question. I think, right, in an element of great team culture is what the team's doing when the coach isn't in the huddle or, or right over top of them. So, so personally, I try to avoid when I can being on the sideline with a team and coach because – I'm very cognizant as a former coach that right then I'm the suit and I don't want coaches to change what they do because I'm there and I don't want kids to frankly even be aware that I'm there. So I try to sit in the stands, basketball games, obviously I'm at the table. Um, But I do try to watch the kids interact with each other. Um, And and I think they're, they're as subjective as that sounds. I think there are some pretty objective things you can look for there and particularly if you know the kids you can look for and see where there's growth and um unselfishness so not everyone's a rah-rah guy but the guys that aren't rah-rah guys that still are are loving somebody up or or giving them a tap or or checking on somebody's not in the game the the guys that are when so particularly in losses right adversity reveals character so when guys down your bench get a chance to play what are the starters and the stars doing? How are they treating that? Um, and again, I think that doesn't necessarily have to be explicitly taught, although some people do that. But if coaches and coaching staffs have done a good job creating culture, a lot of good things will will happen in that regard. Um, and by the way, you could have a team winning a lot of games where we pick up on red flags in that area. So, And that's one example. Um, you know, not during the season. I do want to see. I mean, I think it is inherent, right? We do the, our coaches do these jobs for love, right? They're they're getting paid a whopping zero dollars to do it. Um, but I think it is, you know, 
organizational expectations are, are appropriate and most folks are going to exceed them anyway. Um, you know, but that you can get watching practice. If kids are standing around or not sure where we're going next, and more importantly, if coaches are standing around and not sure what we're doing next or how they're supposed to be used, um, that's something we got to nip in the bud, right? All of us should value every minute out there is incredibly precious and there should be a plan for that. Awesome. Um, so coach Ren, I do want to get to the, the, five or six books for the book recommendation you brought over there. Do you think we can make a game time decision and uh, sure. pick one of those? Sure. I guess since, since we've uh, primarily been in the AD world, I will, I will keep my, uh, my buttoned up shirt and tie wearing um, the, <laughs> the man hat on and, and talk about a, a, a book that has been valuable as a uh, kind of as a professional resource. So um I was joking with, with Jake ahead of time. So I, I've always been a voracious reader, but the reality is most of what I read is pure escapism, right? It is to get away from work and, and world. And, and um, so may not have, has tremendous value to me, may not have the, the literary value that, uh, that, that some other reads have. And that's okay too, right? I think it's important with our English students, right? If they read and they love it, they're, 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 they're ahead of the curve. So what they're reading isn't, isn't quite as important. Um, until they're in the three junior year English classes in college. Um, so I brought with me, this is, um, so I'm a huge fiction guy, and this is uh, nonfiction. I love to listen to podcasts or NPR or whatever. I don't read tons of nonfiction, so this is a rule breaker for me. But this is Tim Elmore's book, Artificial Maturity. Um, and it's subtitled, Helping Kids Meet the Challenge of Becoming Authentic Adults. So Tim Elmore um, is... Uh, Child psychologist for, we've had some other faculty members that in our junior forum, we started a couple of years ago uh, using a program of his called Habitudes that, that that's all Tim Elmore I helped bring up here. I used this um, in Atlanta, both as the eighth grade chair as sort of a character education program with the eighth grade. I started it first at, frankly, I, I had one year where I didn't have a senior baseball player that was on the football team. Almost all those guys were football baseball guys. And so to make sure we were together um, to make sure, right, that, that trust and that chemistry stayed during the football season, we'd have breakfast meetings and work through some of the lessons and habitudes. So same guy, um, his couple books, Artificial Maturity and Generation IY, talk about uh, artificial maturity really stuck with me. It, it, Tim's fine. He, he can be a little bit corny, but he has access to just unbelievable data, unbelievable po folks. So it's filled with, with useful quotes. Um, it talks about how kids present right now as much more mature than we probably did at their age. And a lot of that is because of their access to information, right? Because of Twitter and whatever else, they're so much more aware of what's going on in the world, but they're also much more sheltered in terms of actual genuine experience. Um, th than a, a lot of us may have been. And, you know, and, and the mistake of us assuming the fact that they can speak or act or look mature, assuming that means they are mature, that, that, that sometimes is actually quite the opposite. I think the best part of this book is at the end of every chapter, he actually um, has some of his former clients talk about, and so usually parents, talk about actual hands-on like tools or strategies they used with their kids that were successful. And so that, that's awesome to me, right? That's like the proof is in the pudding. So I remember when I first got this job, actually I, I shared 
one with Henry, right? Because we're both parents of, of boys as they were growing up. And I said it was pretty neat. One of the parents talked about they had a boy going into high school who had started to be interested in, in possibly dating. And, you know, and, and the parents kind of rolling their eyes and were like, he is the most unorganized. He can't, you know, how on earth is he going to be able to do this? So what they came up with is before he could take a young lady out on a date, he had to essentially take his mother out on a date. So had to make a reservation, ask if his mother was free at that time, plan it, plan a, a time to pick her up, even though the, the mom drove him to dinner. Um, <laughs> But kind of go through the routine to sort of understand what what all was involved, and you know, and, and that's just like a little aside. But but I thought some of those nuggets were really kind of interesting, and and again, as as a terrified parent of three children, um, you know, sort of a valuable uh, resource. That's pretty cool. Um, awesome. Well, thanks for bringing that in. Sure. It's interesting. Uh, I was thinking about this the other day too, because there's so many guys on the lacrosse team who they, they look like men. Like they totally. look, they look like, you know, they're in their twenties almost some of them and they're not, they're 16, they're 17 years old. We have a 14 year old on our, on our lacrosse team. And it's like, these guys have, you know, a long way to go. Um, and, and they really could use all of the information that, and, and the lessons that we're trying to, to teach as teachers and coaches. Well, and, and I mean, maybe like lots of books, right? The, the beauty of books is that they tend to be, their value tends to be um, regardless of time, right? So given what's going on in the last year and a half, lots of these kids have grown, gotten bigger, look, you know, they've got facial hair, they, they look even more like men, but the reality is the last year they've spent consuming tons of information and absolutely through no fault of their own, having way less authentic experience than, mm-hmm. than any normal teenager and, and the recent past has. So all the more reason for us to, to try to stay conscious of kind of what, what's beneath the, the surface appearance, right? Cause they're, they're, you know, we're, we're well aware that there are plenty of them that not only are not as mature as they look, but are really struggling internally with, with trying to process what, what has happened to the, the world that they used to be able to kind of count on. Yeah, I think that's the most underrated part of, you know, COVID and everything that's going on is the mental health of everyone, but especially the younger people who still have experiences that they need to, like boys need to have be boys and have experiences and girls need to be girls and have those experiences as teenagers. And they're just missing out on a lot of that right now. So keeping that in mind is important. So I think it's a perfect book recommendation for today. Cool. Well, glad I picked a winner. I only, I only brought about a dozen or so just in case. Game time decision right there. Um, so coach Ren, my last question for today is, um, thinking about some of the guests that have been on the podcast so far, is there anyone that you would like to hear from or, or recommend to try to get on the podcast? Sure. So, uh, so we've talked about Dan Christian, that, that would certainly, um, be an ace in the hole. I think the other, you know, probably not in the next coming weeks because he, he is finally excited to be playing a college baseball season. I, I think Bob Babb, the aforementioned legendary head baseball coach at Hopkins and, and true Renaissance man, um, you know, Jake, since we're talking to you as, you know, former Division One college athlete, English teacher, cartoonist, right, kind of all these different hats you can wear. And, and that's always what sort of impressed me so much uh, about Bob and, um, you know, and, and they've had – this phenomenal baseball success, but, you know, he would talk about the, the 
the amount and variety of community service they do and have been doing for 40 years, um, I think he'd be in it. Well, he is always an interesting conversation and, uh, um, and would be a neat a neat guest. That, that's Gilman adjacent. Right? Yeah, it's right so, down the street. Yeah, unfortunately, his he's, he's a very smart man, but his children did attend McDonough. But um, but regardless, I think we can we can be the bigger institution and, and allow that. Awesome, Bob Babb is is up next. Hopefully, we can get him in here and and reach out to him. So I'm excited sure. for that. Um, Coach Ren, thanks so much for coming on today. It was an awesome conversation. I think we covered pretty much everything, right? That we that we needed to. But, Absolutely. Uh, well, I'm not sure we needed any of it, I, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but it but it was fun nonetheless. I appreciate it. A lot of fun. Thank you very much. Thank you.